What are the stories in your family and in your relationships that get repeated over and over again? You know which ones I'm talking about. The stories that get retold when everyone's together, stories about family vacations, funny memories growing up, stories that tease parents and siblings about their character traits. Some of you right now are bracing yourselves because you know this afternoon for Mother's Day you're going to be hearing some of these stories again, inevitably. Just me, I guess, I don't know. Some stories are worth repeating, not just because they are good or funny, but because they explain what defines us and how we got here today. And the story of Peter and Cornelius is one of those defining stories. In fact, the truth is, if it weren't for this story, most of us wouldn't be here today. Because what we see in this passage is that the Holy Spirit that the Jewish believers received at Pentecost will also indwell non-Jewish believers when they trust the gospel message. By the gospel of Jesus Christ, through the power of the Spirit, there will be one family of God on earth made up of Jews and Gentiles together. And the start of this global family that you and I get to be a part of through Christ traces back to the atrium of Cornelius' house where Peter and Cornelius meet for the very first time. Just like the important stories in your family and in my family get repeated, Luke gives us a version of this story three times in the book of Acts. Here in Acts 10, then again in Acts 11, and once more in Acts 15. It is that significant of a story for the church. Now, we're going to be walking through this story together, so I want to encourage you to keep your Bibles open to Acts 10 there. And we're going to be looking at this story in four scenes. Cornelius' vision, Peter's vision, then Cornelius sends his servants to Peter, and then Peter and the other believers go to Cornelius' home. So before we look at this, I want us to realize that this unique story in history, we will see, still addresses many challenges we struggle with in our own discipleship and following Jesus today. Issues like, does the Holy Spirit work in the church or in the world? Or is it both? How does the Spirit deal with racial and cultural divides in the church? How does God use my prayers to advance his mission in the world? What significance does opening our homes to others who are not like us play in God's work? These are some of the key issues that this one story will address. So now let's look at Cornelius' vision where the story starts. We find that in the first eight verses. The first time I want you to see the first, excuse me, the first thing I want you to see this morning is where this story falls in Acts. Because just before we get this story about Cornelius and Peter, Luke tells us about the most unlikely convert to Christianity. And that was Saul. Saul was the one who imprisoned and physically harmed followers of Jesus. That's what we read about in Acts chapter 9. 
And now Saul has become a follower of Jesus. Now in Acts 10, Saul will share the title of unlikely convert with Cornelius the Gentile. Yes, Saul persecuted Jewish believers, but he was still Jewish. Here in chapter 10, for the first time, God speaks directly to a Gentile. The church in Jerusalem just starts to get comfortable enough to slide down the pew to welcome Saul in. Now in chapter 10, God speaks directly to a wealthy, uncircumcised, non-kosher-eating Gentile, and God didn't get the church's permission to do that. Now, it's one thing to let Saul in, he's Jewish, but Cornelius, he's an enemy soldier. What we also see in these opening verses is that Cornelius is not like his Roman counterparts. Verse 2 tells us that he was a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed to God continually. Cornelius wasn't a full convert to Judaism. He wasn't circumcised. He couldn't stick to the dietary laws. But he was a God-fearer. He worshipped the one true God. He obeyed the moral laws of God. He gave his money away. His heart was generous like God's heart. Cornelius was in the rare group of Gentiles that practiced Judaism. And just as Jewish practice prescribed, he is closing his day in prayer. Luke loves to show us that God does new things at ordinary times of prayer. Way back in the beginning of Luke's gospel, God interrupts Zechariah's prayer in the temple to let him know there is a birth announcement in your family Your wife, Elizabeth, will give birth to John the Baptist, and he will be the one who prepares the way for the coming Messiah. In Acts 3, at the hour of prayer, Peter and John go to the temple, and not knowing that God will use them to answer the prayer of the lame man, the lame man sits outside the temple, and in the name of Jesus Christ, that lame man rises up and walks at the behest of Peter and John. God does extraordinary things at ordinary times of prayer. Luke wants us to see that. So if you are tempted to miss appointed times of prayer, let Luke, what, let what Luke says here encourage you to continue at those times. Now what's interesting is that while Cornelius is praying, God puts the fear of God in him in a fresh way. You see, Cornelius has a vision of an angel and he's terrified. Think about this. Cornelius is a warrior. He's a centurion in charge of a hundred Roman soldiers. I don't imagine that he's afraid of anything, but clearly he fears God. But ultimately, in this terrifying vision, Cornelius discovers He has nothing to be afraid of because God says to Cornelius what we all want to hear when we go and and pray, and that is this, God has answered your prayer. 
At the end of verse 4 and into verse 5, we read this. Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. And like a good soldier, he obeys and sends off his two servants to Peter's home. So, so far we've seen that Cornelius, not a follower of Jesus, is portrayed as a decent man. He's pretty well off financially as a centurion. He has an important job. He's a generous spirit. God is working in his heart. But can I tell you this morning that one of the most difficult things for me to be reminded of is that people like Cornelius have God working in their hearts too. It isn't hard to see how someone with obvious struggles can be radically changed by the gospel. It can be easier to help and share the message of Christ with people who are down and out because at least there's a recognition that life is not working the way it should be. But when it comes to people that for the most part look put together and live decent lives, it's hard to even imagine to find an opportunity to share the gospel with them. And so far this story shows us that maybe when we do share our faith with others, it's not that we're bringing up something out of left field to people, but rather we're talking to them already about what God has put in their heart. Cornelius shows us that God works in the hearts of decent, moral, yes, even religious people. And he wants them to be just as much of part of the covenant people as well. The Holy Spirit isn't just working in the hearts of church people. He works in the hearts of the people that you share an office with. Students you sit with at school in the lunchroom, or your neighbor that you share a fence with. Cornelius shows us that the Holy Spirit is really at work in the world. And his spirit is going to map, and God's spirit is going to advance that mission to outsiders. But you see, in order for the spirit to advance the mission, the Spirit has to do work in the church as well. In order for the church to be the means in which God converts the world, the church needs its own continued conversion. And that's what we see next when we, have, when we look at Peter's vision here. The next day, we read 30 miles in Joppa, just like Cornelius, we find Peter praying. And he doesn't know this when he's praying, but today's time of prayer will prepare him for the day's meeting. God meets people at usual hours of prayer. That's what we learn with Cornelius. But here we see that God meets us when we pray off hours too. You see, because Peter is praying at noontime, this was the hour to eat, and he was hungry. And rather than feeding his physical appetite, he goes up on the rooftop for some privacy and probably some cool air so he can spend time in prayer. And when Peter closes his eyes, God opens him up to a vision that sours Peter's appetite. 
In verse 11, we see that a great white sheet drops from heaven containing both clean and unfit animals according to Jewish dietary laws. Then God says to Peter the unthinkable, rise, Peter, kill, and eat. As modern readers, we may see this as God flashing on the big screen the biggest fear factor challenge in history to Peter. But that's not what's going on here. God isn't just daring Peter to expand his culinary palate. The vision of the animals challenges Peter to rethink his Jewish identity. Some take the four corners of the sheet to represent the four corners of the world. This is a world-changing vision that God places before Peter. You are what you eat. And for Peter to eat these foods meant that he crossed the divide between being the insider of the covenant to now being the outsider himself. This is a very big deal. Because remember in the Old Testament, it was Daniel who was memorialized as a hero because he wouldn't eat at a Gentile king's table. Some Jews took this dietary restriction so seriously that they said they would rather prefer death than to eat Gentile cuisine. Now with this vision, God exposes just how tightly Peter holds on to his Jewish identity. But in this vision, we also discover that Peter is truly Middle Eastern because he argues back and forth with God, not as a form of disobedience, but as an act of active listening. I try to tell my wife this all the time, I'm not arguing with you, I'm actively listening. <laughs> now like the prophets Jeremiah, like the prophets Jeremiah and Moses, his arguing demonstrates that he really understands the magnitude of God's call in his life now. And just like the prophet Jonah, who was also in Joppa, Peter becomes aware that God's covenantal love extends beyond the borders of Israel into Gentile territory. You'll remember that Jesus restores Peter in John chapter 21. And three times he asks Peter, do you love me? And if you do, feed my sheep. And Peter will soon learn the truth that what Jesus meant by that was that there were Gentiles who were sheep that were not yet in the fold. But unlike Jonah, there is no time for Peter to run away from this. In fact, he can't. Because verse 17 says, Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean. The vision was as clear as day, but Peter was still very much left in the dark. What did God mean when he said, what he has made clean, we should not call common? Was it really about eliminating uh, the division between foods, it was eliminating the division between Jews and Gentiles. Now in the third scene that we enter into, God springs on Peter an immediate pop quiz to see if he has some understanding of the vision because the Spirit of God tells him to open the door where there are Gentile guests. And what Peter discovers is that God's love for the Gentiles isn't a passive form of love. It's a tenacious love. It's a love that is found right at his doorstep. 
And Peter responds in faith by opening the door to the Gentiles. And God uses Peter's hospitality to advance his mission in the world. You know, we should never undermine the theological significance of opening up our homes to others who are not like us. Hospitality has always played a critical role in the life of the church, and after the pandemic, I think it will again play a significant role, especially as we entertain more and more divisions between ourselves. The simple way we can show obedience to God is to open up our hearts and to open up our homes to others. At this moment in in the story, Both Cornelius and Peter have received visions from God, and neither one of them know exactly what God is up to, but their ignorance doesn't prevent risky obedience. Because for Cornelius, he sends Gentiles to a Jewish home with no assurance that they will be welcomed in. And for Peter, he hosts ceremonially unclean Gentiles overnight where he is staying, And then he agrees to travel to Cornelius' home. Listen to what preacher William Willimon says about this. Peter does not know where he is going or why. Rather, he trusts the story to work itself out. Baffled he is, he is still willing to be led. Disciples are those who at times say, Lord, I do not know where you are leading me, but here I am. In obedience to God, Cornelius and Peter take the risk of meeting with each other at Cornelius' home. It's Cornelius' time to host now. And that's what we see in the fourth scene in the story, beginning in verse 24. And you'll see right away, this does not get off to a good start. There's quite a learning curve for Peter and Cornelius when they meet. When Peter and the fellow believers enter into Cornelius' house, there are a whole lot of guests there that Peter probably didn't anticipate. All eyes were on Peter and Cornelius. And to break the ice, Cornelius bows down to Peter, thinking he is showing great respect for his honored guest. That's blunder number one. Peter lets the host know, you only bow down to God, I'm a mere man. Then Peter, the honored guest, starts his warm hello in this way. You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit with anyone of another nation. That's blunder number two. Maybe Peter is from Philly, I don't know. (laughs) At this point, we may be tempted to call off the meeting. Because is the church really the kind of body that can absorb and correct cultural offenses? Is it really the the body of Christ that can deal with racial divisions? Is it? Well, sadly, we have seen and continue to see how fellow Christians hurt and offend each other over issues of culture and race. But we must never conclude that this means we can distance ourselves from each other. You see, the meeting between Peter and Cornelius is taking place in Cornelius' home. Yes, that's true. But it is the Holy Spirit who is setting up this dinner meeting. And despite a bad beginning between them, 
God, by his spirit, will keep them together. And look how this happens in the story. Between the time of his vision until he gets to Cornelius' house, Peter undergoes a deeper conversion. At the end of verse 28, he says, God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. And Peter breaks Jewish customs by entering into the house. And then he listens to a Gentile about what the God of Israel has said to him. Cornelius is used to being the one who dulls out the orders. But look at how he ends his testimony at the end of verse 33 there. Now therefore we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. They started off on the wrong foot. But because their hearts were gripped by God, they do the difficult work of keeping the bond of peace together. And we can do the same. When the spirit pioneers change in the church to address racial and cultural divisions, we often fail to act like Cornelius and Peter towards each other. Instead, we cut each other off. We demonize each other. And we need the help of the Spirit just as much as Cornelius and Peter did then. Listen to what Sri Lankan Bible teacher Ajith Fernando says about the problem in his context. He says, many Christians who adopt modern-day pragmatism do not have much place for commitment to long-lasting relationships. They do not have patience for other Christians with differences. Many feel their agenda does not allow such a waste of time. He puts that phrase in quotes. Thus they simply leave the group and join a new one. So what's the solution? Here's what he says. We must help people understand that the nature of Christian identity which does not depend on human distinctions When people realize they are accepted only because of the mercy of God, they also realize they cannot look down on anyone. If we do not feel secure and accepted in Christ, we need earthly things to make us feel more important, like feeling superior to others. To one who has truly understood grace, such a position is an impossibility. We have attitudes of superiority. We create divisions among ourselves because we have fundamentally forgotten who we are in Jesus Christ. Now in the last part of the chapter, Peter's going to preach a very familiar sermon about Jesus. But this time he preaches this sermon with a new understanding of grace the kind of grace that Ajith Fernando is talking about. Let's look at this sermon together in verse, starting in verse 34. Peter says this, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and, do what is, and does what is right excuse me, is acceptable to him. Now on the surface, it sounds like Peter is saying that Cornelius and his household Uh, have saving faith in God already apart from the gospel. They are acceptable to God. But that's not what's going on here. Instead, we learn that in Acts chapter 11, when this story is retold, that Cornelius was told by God that Peter will preach a message that will what? That will save him. 
So Peter isn't saying that Cornelius and his household were already reconciled to God. But Peter does start with the truth of what he just learned, that all people stand equally before God the Creator. And this God who created all people sends Jesus into the world to preach peace, and that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. As a centurion, Cornelius was charged to keep the peace. And as a Roman, he knew that the title Lord was used in reference to the emperor. Now he understands the true meaning of these words. Jesus Christ is the true Lord, and it is his message that will bring peace to the world. Peter goes on to say that by the power of the Spirit, Jesus ministered throughout Israel. He taught and healed people. And by Peter's own people, Jesus Christ was put to death. And it was Cornelius' government who provided the cross. Three days later, Jesus was raised from the dead. And Peter and the apostles were all witnesses to that. And then they had table fellowship with the risen Lord. And in obedience to Jesus, they went out to preach the gospel, telling everyone that there is forgiveness of sins found in the Lord Jesus. And right in the middle of the sermon, at the preacher's worst time, the Holy Spirit jumps in and interrupts it. Something incredible happens. The Gentiles believe the gospel message. And the same spirit that anointed Jesus for his ministry now falls on the Gentiles. At Pentecost, Peter preached that the spirit would fall on all flesh. And now he sees what that word all really means. The Gentiles are included too. And just like the apostles at Pentecost, the Gentiles speak in tongues, praising God in various languages. In this Roman household, in the atrium of Cornelius' home, Psalm 67 is lived out. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. And then Cornelius and his house are baptized. At the beginning of the story, Peter and Cornelius are in very different places. They are racially and culturally divided. Peter is an insider, Cornelius is an outsider. And now by the Spirit, they become one. They become one body. And they are now one household of God. Notice in the passage, who's amazed by this in verse 45... It was the believers who were amazed. And they were the ones who knew that Jesus' mission would spread throughout the world. Every single day, people all over the world are coming to Christ, not just across the globe, but there are people all around us that we may not even know that God is already working in their hearts, just like he did with Cornelius. And for myself, God has taught this lesson to me in a very memorable way. 
At the last church we attended before we moved, we attended uh, a church in a suburb of Philadelphia, and that suburb is familiar, or excuse me, similar to Princeton in many, many ways. And since we were renting a church building at the time, one of the things I had to do was help with the Sunday morning setup. One of my jobs was to make an urn of coffee, and I always made sure it was extra strong so people wouldn't fall asleep during the sermon to help the preacher. Or as I was carrying the big urn of coffee, I saw a man with a white t-shirt that was stained and wearing blue jeans come into the church building. He was tattooed from his neck down. I didn't know what to expect. I was actually quite scared and caught off guard. But I decided to walk over to him and shake his hand. His name was Freddie. And he told me that he was just released from jail earlier that morning from North Philadelphia. I thought he wanted some food, so I started to head to the table to give him a few donuts. And then we sat down. He told me that while he was in prison, his cellmate started to share his faith with him. And he promised his cellmate that when he was released, he would immediately go to church. Well, there are lots of churches. So Freddie asked his cellmate, what kind of a church? And his cellmate said, I don't really know. Just go and God will help you. Just then, another member of our church walked in and sat down next to us. It was our turn to pick up where the Holy Spirit left off with his cellmate. And for 20 minutes, we shared the gospel with Freddie. He always knew he did bad things, but he didn't know he did them because he has a sinful nature. He knew that God loved him generally, but he didn't know that Christ died for his sins personally and that he was raised from the dead so that Freddie could have new life too. Freddie sat with me all during the service, and it was in that service I realized so much of what we do as Christians is designed for insider knowledge. After every part of the service, he would ask me, why do you have a call to worship? Why do you have an invocation? Why do you confess your sin? Why do you take communion? That was a lot of heavy theological lifting on the spot, I got to tell you. Well, despite my attempts to try to explain things on the fly, God used our interaction, and, Peter, and um, Freddie that day said he wanted to get baptized. That story in my life is a constant reminder that just as God has worked in the heart of Cornelius, he continues to work in the hearts of others all around us as well. And we need to be reminded of that today. And my prayer for us as a church is that when you leave this place and when you go home and you go to work this week or school, that rather than praying, God, do something in, in the hearts of people that maybe you don't want to do, instead we would pray with great expectation, God, lead me to the people you're already working in because we know that you are. And that's the amazing uh, truth of being a follower of Jesus Christ. He uses us to advance his mission in the world. And what we will find is that as we share this message, not only will people come to Christ, 
who do not yet know him, but what we will also find is that we are continuing to be converted by the very same gospel that we share. What an amazing, powerful message that breaks down the divide between us, no matter what those differences are. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, you have never stopped reaching down on this earth to reach your people. Forgive us, Lord, for being hesitant to pray for the advancement of your mission. Forgive us for giving up opportunities of prayer. Forgive us for not opening up our hearts to home and, and our homes to others who are not like us. Lord Jesus, you are the gracious host who will, who will host the great banquet on the last day. And you will not start the meal until every last person you have called to yourself is at that table. Lord, may we eagerly want this. May we eagerly desire this to bring your message to those that you are calling all around us. Give us the grace and wisdom to do this, we ask this week. In Jesus' name, amen.